At 9.15 a.m. on Friday the 21st of October 1966, Pantglass Junior School in a small village in South Wales had just begun its last day before the half-term holidays when a 34-metre-high waste pile from a nearby coal mine burst its walls, slid down the hill, and wiped out the school. 116 children were killed that day, along with 28 adults. The Aberfan disaster, as it's known, is still the worst mining-related disaster in British history. My dad was living in the next valley along, uh, and he clearly remembers the end of that school day very differently because all parents picked up their children that day, crying. As a nine-year-old, he didn't quite understand why. He was dragged along to chapel the following Sunday. I can't move, sorry. And the vicar of that chapel that morning stood up and started his sermon with these words. God has made a mistake. God has made a mistake. My dad clearly remembers hearing them. In the face of unthinkable tragedy, that was the only response the vicar had at that time. I wonder how we'd react if that happened in a town near us. But that, if you read this, if you listen to Keith and Emma as they read this, that's how the people of Jerusalem were feeling in chapter 2. They're baffled and they're bewildered by what's going on and they don't know whether God's made a mistake or not. The first word of that chapter gives us something of this. Have a look at it. The first word is how. It's the first word of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. And in the original Hebrew, it's the title of this whole book. How. It's a cry of pain. It's also a question. How can this possibly have happened? It is anguish, looking for answers. Lord, how can this happen? Have you made a mistake? And a little bit frustratingly for us, perhaps, even though the writer of this chapter knows the answer, he doesn't jump straight to the answer. What he does is he takes the hurt of the pain and the voices of the people that he loves, and he says it for them. And we don't even get the happy ending, the happy conclusion that we might want in a situation like this. And so what this author does is he shows us five things as we walk through this chapter. And the first thing the writer of this chapter shows us is what has happened. He shows us what has happened. And verses 1 to 10 describe what has happened to Jerusalem. This happened in 587 BC. And it is, it's horrific. This is horrific. And the poet describes it and summarizes it in verse 1 as the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. Now that word Zion, we've used it a lot. You'll have heard it last week. You'll hear it a lot. That is just an Old Testament name for the place where God lives. That's what Zion means. And it was also another name for Jerusalem because God lived in the temple in Jerusalem. So Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And daughter Zion now, this precious child of God, has been covered with the cloud of God's anger. In the Old Testament so far, whenever clouds and God have been mixed together, they've always been a sign of blessing. Loads of positive things have happened when God meets his people as a cloud. So, for example, Solomon, when he built the temple in 2 Chronicles 5, God appears in a cloud in that temple. God's cloud has always been a blessing to God's people. Until now. Now the cloud of God's blessing has turned into the cloud of his anger. And the results are just disastrous. Verse 1, he's hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. And then the next nine verses show how all the things the Israelites celebrated and boasted about, they have all been destroyed and brought down. Verse 2, 
the military strongholds of Judah, their kings and their princes. Verse 4, their beautiful people. Verse 5, their palaces and strongholds. Verses 8 and 9, the walls and the gates that protected the city. Everything has been torn down. These mighty structures have been smashed like Lego. The city has been unbuilt. And everybody who's left is down too. Have a look at verse 10. Their leaders, the elders, the ones are meant to look to for hope here. And the young women, their hope for the future. They're just crushed. And they're mourning. But it's worse than that. Look at verse 6. The temple is gone. The temple's gone. It's laid waste. And so the people can't celebrate anything there anymore. And their way back to God, their special place of meeting God and their relationship with him, it's gone. But it gets even worse than that. Not only has the temple gone, verse 7, God himself has gone. The God of all creation has left his people and he's gone away. And the temple that should be full of God's people celebrating his victory is full of God's enemies celebrating their victory. This is so utterly heartbreaking. No wonder how is the question that hangs over this whole chapter. How, Lord? How could all of this happen here? As Keith read it, did you feel the shock and the pain and the hurt? The writer sees the pain and the destruction and he voices how the people are feeling. God, have you made a mistake? And that's particularly because the real pain of these 10 verses is who has done this? Who has done this? And in one sense, the answer to that question is historical. Verse 7, we know that the Babylonians were the enemy who came in and did all this to Jerusalem. But that's not what the writer says, is it? That isn't what the writer of Lamentations says. In fact, in the first eight verses of this chapter, the Lord is the active person in every single sentence. The Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down. He has not remembered. The Lord has swallowed up. The writer has got no problem saying that while Babylon was the means... God was behind the destruction of Jerusalem. There is no question about whether God is sovereign over their hurt and their pain. And that is the most heartbreaking of all. Israel's covenant God, the God who called them, who rescued them from Egypt, who led them to this land, who established them as a nation, who gave them kings and cities and victory over all their enemies, the God who calls them daughter Zion with that affection, that Lord has acted from their perspective like an enemy towards his precious people. And it is devastating. There's nothing to compare it to. I tried to think of an illustration that might help explain this, but there's nothing. Nothing comes, comes close to the shock of this situation. The Lord is like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. And so the writer observing everything that's happened, this just gets too much for him to keep in. And so it shifts, doesn't it, in verse 11 to first person. And he bursts out to show us thirdly how this feels. How this feels. And the emotion of him just pours out in verse 11 onwards. Verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. This grief wells up in him and now bursts out. 
it literally bursts out. My heart is poured out on the ground in that verse. Literally means his bile is poured out. This could mean he's vomiting with grief. But it's not surprising when you see what he sees. Verse 11 and 12 are harrowing, aren't they? Children crying out for food and drink, and yet there's none. And so they faint and they die in the arms of their mothers. It brings tears to our eyes just thinking about it. And this writer is so desperate to comfort his people. He really wants to do that. And so verse 13, he speaks to the people of Jerusalem. This is the first time in this book that anyone's spoken to Jerusalem. And he's desperate to comfort her, but he's on a mission to fail. Her suffering is beyond compare. And so she's beyond any comfort. The only comparison that he can think of just shows how big her suffering is. Your wound is as deep as the sea. And any wound that deep is beyond healing. He can't comfort Jerusalem. But he hopes maybe others can. And he looks around to look, see if someone else will maybe come and comfort. So what about the prophets? Well, no, verse 14, they've proven themselves to be useless. They didn't do what they should have been doing in the first place, exposing the sin of God's people so that this didn't happen. Instead, if you read Jeremiah chapter 6, 13 to 14, but repeated often through Jeremiah... They were wandering around telling everybody everything's fine. Peace, peace, they kept telling people. And since they didn't speak the truth then, they can't be trusted to speak the truth now. They're not going to comfort Jerusalem. So what about her neighbors? Maybe the people that live nearby will come and give them help. Sadly not. Verse 15, everyone who walks by is just useless. They can only ask how this has happened and react with the shock that is right. The city that was so strong and stunning is now a heap of rubble. And they're a bit cruel in there too. They delight that the city that boasted um, about its strength is now this weak. Okay, but maybe their enemies, maybe their sorry state and the level of their destruction is going to move people who were previously enemies to want to help them. But again, no. Their enemies are just delighted. Finally, they glow. The day we've been waiting for has come. Smug old Jerusalem, we've boasted for so long, has been brought down to size and swallowed up. Verse 16 pours a quarry of salt into the wound as deep as the sea. And so vomiting with anguish because Jerusalem has been unbuilt by God, acting like an enemy, and because there's no one to comfort her and her enemies are rejoicing, there's nothing left but pain, isn't there? And yet behind all this, there's something else. Something that the poet has known all along. Something that makes all of this even worse, if that's possible. And he eventually tells us, fourthly, why this has happened. And verse 17 pulls the rug out from underneath every other question this chapter throws out. The Lord has done what he planned. He's fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. God warned them he'd do this. Every bit of this, every detail mentioned here is what God said would happen if his people didn't keep their covenant. There are two Old Testament books that predict this explicitly. We haven't got time to read them this morning, but feel free later on. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are two chapters where God promises blessing for his people if they remain faithful to him, but destruction and exile if they didn't. 
And he gave them that right at the beginning of their relationship with him. And they've been warned since then that the consequences for consistent disobedience was exactly this. Even in the 40 years before this all happened, while the worthless prophets were going around telling everyone everything's fine, the prophet Jeremiah, who we think wrote this book, was going around telling everybody this was on its way if they didn't change. This didn't need to happen. But they can't say they weren't warned. God has warned his people about this day for centuries, and it's finally come. The ruins of Jerusalem sent a very clear message. God is long-suffering and merciful, but rebellion against him, what the Bible calls sin, that has consequences. And the people of Jerusalem have learned that God always, always keeps his promises, including his promise to punish. And the rubble of Jerusalem is proof of that. You see, for centuries, Jerusalem had pointed to the sin of other cities and other nations around them and then rejoiced when God punished those other places. But now the people around point, around point back and rejoice that God has punished Jerusalem. And verse 17, well, it seems to end with a silence. What do you do with this? He, we all want, this author, he wants a God who punishes sin He just didn't want a God who punished their sin. And so there's nothing more to say. But in that silence, you can imagine the writer here hearing a faint cry of someone from within the city and the wails of the people that are left. And this prompts him to speak again. He knows now what to do. And he tells us, fifthly, where to turn. Where to turn? Yes, the God who they once relied on has turned on them like an enemy and he's punished them like he said he would. So what are they meant to do? Where are they meant to go? Well, the prophet says, when they don't know what to do, do the only thing you know you can do. Cry out to God. Call out to him and keep calling out to him. In verses 18 and 19, he says, it's better for them to weep than to sleep. Keep calling out to God. Keep telling him everything you're feeling. Verse 19, all night long, pour out your heart, your feelings, your pain, your bile and anguish to God. Pour out every single one of your howls to him. He says, lift up your hands, doesn't he, in verse 19. This is like a little child whose parents have told them off and who desperately wants comforting. And the only place they know to go is the parent that's just hurt them. When there's nowhere else to turn, he says, even when the Lord feels like an enemy, the only place to go is to turn to him and cry out to him. Pour out your sorrow and your sadness and your grief and your mourning, he says, even when God is clearly the one who's caused it. But how can they do that? How on earth can this people do that? God has nearly just wiped them out. So how can they turn to the God who's just been like an enemy to them? Well, it's because as we've already seen, God always keeps his promises. And they can turn to the one who's just been like an enemy to them because he is still the one who keeps his promises. He, to always hear his people when they cry out to him. And in one of those chapters we thought about earlier, Leviticus 26, after God has promised this exact punishment for his people, if they keep disobeying, we read this. It's a lot of words on the screen. I'm going to say it out loud anyway. This is uh, Leviticus 26, 
For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They'll pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. God always keeps his promises. And so that's their only hope. And the God who promised punishment also promised forgiveness. And so remembering that, the writer urges the people to cry out to God, asking him to look at them and to remember the promises he made to them. And that's what they do. They cry, confident that God is the same God who keeps his promises, even when he feels like an enemy. And so verses 20 to 22, we then hear the voice of the city that Emma read for us, crying out to God, shaking their fists at him, questioning what he's done, but crying out to him nonetheless. But again, frustratingly, we want this chapter to end with a little bit of comfort, don't we? We want some hope. We want at least a hint of a happy ending to come. We want the people to come to their senses, right, and repent and say sorry for everything they should say sorry for. But we don't get that here. Instead, this chapter ends with the whole city angry at God. Like the vicar near Abavan, the tone of 20 to 22 is, it feels like you've made a mistake, God. And that's where it ends. That's where the poet leaves us. And so with that poem ringing in our ears, we're left with a a difficult question today. What are we meant to do with Lamentations (laughs) 2? And I've really wrestled with this the last month or so. And the one thing that's become really clear to me is that this is really hard to apply. (laughs) Particularly because we can't just take this chapter wholesale and apply it directly for us today. Their situation isn't our situation. They had a very clear promise from God to punish them if they disobeyed. We don't have that promise for us. And so we don't want to wrongly apply lamentations. And there's a real risk that we can run to two real extremes as Christians here this morning when we apply lamentations to ourselves. The first extreme is to think that every pain in our life is God's punishment on us for some form of sin or disobedience that we've done. To think that all pain is punishment, that is one extreme. But the other extreme is to think that God never allows harm to happen to us anymore. That God's somehow changed. All of our sins have been punished in Jesus, so pain's just pain. We just need to get through it. God isn't speaking to us through pain. And both of those extremes are wrong. Yes, the New Testament makes it clear that if we're Christians, our sins have been fully paid for by Jesus on the cross. But it also is clear that God lovingly disciplines people through tough times sometimes and through painful situations sometimes. But the truth is, neither of those are what is happening in Lamentations. And we also need to be really careful with all the hurts and pains that we feel in our life today. I know there are people in this room who are grieving at the moment for different things. And if I'm being honest, I'm not convinced, I might be wrong, but I'm not convinced Lamentations is speaking directly to you in that. Because the pain here is clearly the direct punishment of God on his people for their disobedience. 
And that is just not true for us today with our morning. We don't have that clarity. Yes, this chapter does give us permission to cry out with complete honesty and bluntness to God. And it shows us that God has got broad enough shoulders to cry on and a big enough chest to beat against. And chapters like this give us words that we can use to help do that. But this chapter isn't directly speaking to people who are mourning today. And so as I mulled it over, I've become convinced that this chapter is here as a memorial. You know that we have the war memorial in Vicky Park? It's there to remind us of what happened in the past so we don't make the same mistakes. And this chapter is here as a memorial to help us remember. And there are four things that I think this chapter wants to help us remember, that the burning rubble of Jerusalem stands as a memorial for. And the first thing is that sin is serious. Sin is serious. Lamentations 2 shows us very clearly just how serious sin is. By sin, what the Bible means, what I mean, is our every single one of us, our inclination to reject God as ruler over our lives and living with other things is more important than him. We tell our children, use the acronym of sin, and we say that sin is saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. And it is serious. Lamentations 2 shows us the end consequences of sin. Our sin would have us this destroyed if it could. And yet I know that I can too easily play down my own sin in my life and think that my sin isn't that bad. Or deep down, if I'm being honest, I believe God isn't really bothered by my sin. No, he's not like that anymore. And like the people of Jerusalem who thought they got away with it for ages, God's not going to be bothered by my sin anymore. But Lamentations 2 forces us to see just how seriously God takes sin. The contrast between God's name for his people, daughter Zion, and how he acts towards them. He loves them, and he acts this way towards them. That shows how serious sin is. God deeply loves his people. When we hear the pain of the writer in this book in verse 11 to 16, we're meant to hear God's voice in there too. This didn't give him pleasure to do this to his people. He deeply loves them, but because he loves them, he has to take sin seriously, and he has to keep his promises. And what we read in Lamentations 2 is what happens when a perfectly loving God comes face to face with sin. So Lamentations 2 reminds us that our sin is not small and it is not harmless. It is a big deal to God. He is angry at sin. It has ruined the creation that he loves. Much like I would feel right anger at anyone who deliberately harmed Ephah, Except more righteous than that, God rages at the sin that has ruined his people. And Lamentations 2 shows us just how serious sin is. But it also helps us to remember that judgment is severe. See, a serious sin needs a severe punishment. And Lamentations 2 shows us just how terrifying and terrible and awesome God's judgment and wrath is against sin. See, the horrors of 587 BC are just a picture, are just a hint of the punishment that our sin deserves. Rebellion against a completely perfect and holy God is not a small thing. And the punishment for it will be proportionate. This isn't over the top. This is just. This is a huge question for us. 
Do we believe this? Do we realize how much punishment our sin deserves? Even as Christians, the sins that we commit are still offensive to God. And the punishment that our sins deserve is so complete and so total and so terrifying. I forget that all the time. And so I take my moments of disobedience to God far too lightly. My actions, my words, my heart attitudes. And yet Lamentations helps us to remember the punishment that all of our sins deserve from God. And it's also a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. Do we believe that our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus for themselves are right now heading towards even worse than what is described here? Those people we see every day who we love, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, our families, everybody we meet and know, if they're not a Christian, they are facing far worse than this ahead. Any moment now. Does that make us desperate for the people that we love? This should lead us to cry out to God for them day and night. Do we love them enough to warn them ourselves? If you're not yet a Christian here this this morning, if you haven't had your sins forgiven by Jesus at the cross, Lamentations 2 tells you that all pain and hurt and sorrow and suffering is still a loving act from God. But it's a loving warning that this life is not all there is, And that if your sins are not paid for by someone else while you're still alive, then you will face a greater judgment paying for them yourself when you meet God face to face. And you will meet God face to face one day. The ultimate statistic, one out of one people die. And we all want a God who punishes sin. We would hate a God who let horrible people get away with horrible things. We just don't want a God who punishes my sin. Right? But the Bible tells us that he will. He must. And any pain now is a shadow. It is a picture of his future condemning judgment. But it's also a call to run away from that future judgment while you still have chance. And as your church and as your friends, we love you enough to warn you about it. Remember the prophets in verse 14? They didn't love the people of Jerusalem. So they didn't warn them of the judgment that was coming. We don't want to be like them. We love you enough to warn you of the danger that you're in. We love you enough to call you to run away from it, to escape. We don't tell you it with glee, with a smile in our face, but we say it with tears in our eyes and a desperation in our heart and prayers to God for you. But we also do it with hope. Because Lamentations 2 also reminds us thirdly, we have a saviour. During his life on earth, Jesus told his friends again and again, everything that the Old Testament writes is written about me, he says repeatedly. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is pointing forwards to Jesus in some way or other. And this chapter is no exception to that. See, as Jerusalem was thrown down, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And just as the enemies of God's people mocked Jerusalem, his enemies mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself, they said. People were shocked at what happened to Jesus. He was abandoned. He was covered with the cloud of God's anger. And yet even that wasn't an accident. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see the greatest example of the Lord doing what he planned, of the Lord fulfilling his word from he decreed from long ago. You see, right from the moment sin entered the world, God promised that he would undo it. 
that he'd send the solution. He would send his rescuer, the Messiah, his promised king, to undo all of the bad that sin brought in and to win forgiveness for us. And all through his life, Jesus demonstrated again and again, that's me, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then as he dies, mocked, beaten, broken, seemingly defeated, Jesus takes the cloud of God's anger that we all deserve unto himself. He is swallowed up. He is cut off. He is slain. He's laid waste. He's rejected and abandoned. And he is torn down and killed instead of us. Instead of you. Instead of me. He takes the punishment that our sins deserve so that we never have to. So we don't need to fear this type of punishment from God in our lives when we do make mistakes. Because it's finished, Jesus says. It's paid in full by him at the cross. And it's easy to read this chapter and think that this, if we're honest, this sounds a bit worse than what Jesus went through on the cross. But instead, this is here to help us see more clearly just a faint hint of what Jesus experienced on the cross for all of us. So that we never have to experience worse than this for ourselves. As the old hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And what's the response? Hallelujah. What a saviour. Lamentations 2 reminds us of the seriousness of our sin and how severe God's judgment on it is, but it also fuels our praise and our thankfulness and our worship and our adoration of the God who provided a way to escape it for us. To anybody who comes to him through his death and punishment in his place on the cross. So Lamentations fuels our worship and our praise and our repentance and our perseverance and it fuels our evangelism. Because God is a God who still keeps his promises and he promises that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Are you not a Christian yet this morning? Why not? Come to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness right now. Ask for his mercy and he'll get it immediately. He'll give it to you straight away. His death will be applied to you. His forgiveness will be given to you in an instant. And that is a Bible promise. And God always keeps his promises. And if we are Christians, that means that we can keep going in the face of any suffering we face as well. Because Lamentations also helps us to look back, but also remember looking forward that the future is secure. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to show that his victory over all that sin has caused. And he then went to be with the Father in heaven. But the Bible makes it clear Jesus is coming back one day. And when he does, all suffering, all sadness, all sickness, all sorrow, and all sin is going to be done away with completely. And if we're in him, we will see exactly what God was doing and all of our pain through our lives. And we will praise him for all eternity for all of his loving, merciful acts. And the Bible says the place where we will do that is called the new Jerusalem, the new Zion. So we can take heart now and we can keep going now. Lamentations 2 helps us to look back on a memorial, to remember the seriousness of our sin, to remember the severity of God's judgment, to remember the savior that he provided, and then to look forward to the security that we all have in the future. And so we can keep going 
through whatever life throws at us now. Lamentations 2 is a memorial given to us to help us live wholeheartedly lives of love, worship, gratitude, adoration, fighting sin, and reaching out to others until Jesus comes again and takes us to be with him in that new Jerusalem forever, where there'll be no more sickness, no more sadness, none of this for eternity. And it's worth it. Let's pray. Father God, these are difficult things that we've looked at today. This is a difficult passage to read, let alone understand and apply. And yet, Father, I pray that as we have done that, I pray that things that are helpful will stick. I pray that you'd remove things from our head that aren't anything that isn't helpful. But Father, would you show us just how sinful we really are, but how great our Savior really is. I pray that you'd show us the terror of the wrath to come so that we'll be so excited to have been saved from it and to call others to run away from it too. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. And we pray that you'd help us to rejoice in that and celebrate that more and more. Amen.